This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I am joined, as will often be the case, going forward by Jonathan Newman. Jonathan, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Bob? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, well, I'm not doing that good because someone is resurrecting the merits of socialism on Twitter. And so we thought, folks, that this would be a good topic for Jonathan and me to discuss. So this guy, Rocco, I don't know who he is. Uh, he seems to be involved in AI. And he says, uh, and the reason I'm focusing on this is because this kind of blew up on Twitter. It was making the rounds, at least in econ Twitter. So somebody had said, would the USSR have worked if they had had powerful computers to start out with? And then this guy, Rocco, retweeted that and said, controversial take. Centrally planned economies probably work better than market economies with today's compute. And that's what he said. And then um, the AI would probably make the sentence grammatical. And then let me just read two of his follow-ups because it, it, did, it did blow up. Like I said, it was making the rounds among economists. Folks can imagine how that went. And he said, um, even more controversial take with big tech and the centralization of capital and index funds, BlackRock, et cetera, and ESG incentives, this is basically already happening by stealth. And because it's by stealth rather than upfront, it's chaotic and unfair. And then the last thing I'll read for you from him, and then we'll, I'll get your take, Jonathan, your initial reaction. This tweet seems to have garnered a lot of disagreement, but most of the arguments seem really weak. Seems like a lot of people use magical thinking about market economies. And then he's got like quotation marks around some of the objections people had raised to his initial controversial take. How would you get the information about what people want? So he responds, everyone has a phone with an intelligent agent, GPT, on it. This isn't a problem. How would you get the information about production conditions and whether specific machines are working, whether there is a disease affecting crops, etc.? And he responds, that's already happening with AI monitoring production and will accelerate. This isn't a blocker at all. Then... The bureaucrats would corrupt it, he says, but the whole point is there wouldn't be bureaucrats. They would be replaced with AI. And then the last one, it's impossible to solve resource allocation problems computationally. And he responds, no, it isn't. The current economy is an algorithm. It's just a really suboptimal one. Okay, so there's a lot there for us to dive into. So Jonathan, go ahead. You you get first dibs at it. Sure. So I always have this uh, sort of arguments in my head about whether I'll respond with just a simple meme or actually do like a, a point by point takedown. And I don't know, I guess it was just the mood that I was in at the time, but I decided to just respond with the meme. And, and it's one of my favorites. I didn't, I didn't make it up, but it's this picture of like this giant monster. I don't know if it's from like a video game or something that's, that's looking down at this tiny little ship in the water. And the, the monster uh, just says, I like broccoli now. And the ship, the text over the ship says the giant supercomputer that planned the economy one year in advance. The idea being that uh, that human action is unpredictable, that values are subjective, and and oftentimes our, our preferences are, are fleeting. So we like one thing in one second and we like something else in another second. So the idea that uh, even with these supercomputers that we have in our pocket, the, these cell phones that have access to th new, new technology like uh, uh, chat GPT and other things, the idea that uh, we could just outsource our thinking, our valuing, and our um, and, and all of the all of the sort of like the necessary things that have to happen before market prices emerge 
the idea that we could outsource all of that to to chat gpt is just it's laughable it's uh it's it's not it's not something that is just technologically not practical it's something that is it's categorically impossible and and the main reason why is because we have these these fleeting ordinal preferences um that are that exist only inside of our mind and are only viewable by outside observers uh, in action uh, which means that there's no way for all of that information to be plugged into a, a device or some sort of supercomputer that could make a plan for the entire economy for everybody uh, for the simple reason that there's just this computational um I, I should say categorical difference between the sorts of inputs that go in and the sorts of outputs that are required for for such a plan to to happen well yeah i agree i think that what you just said is the is the fundamental problem with what he said that it's it's a qualitative difference it's a it's a category error i think i'm just repeating some of your phrases um for for people that you know if, if you're familiar with what that phrase means that it's it's not merely that oh he's miscalculating and he misunderstands something on the it's it's you know it's like we're saying what's two plus two and he says green it's not <laughs> it's not even that he's wrong it's like no that's not even the right type of answer yeah, like yeah. that doesn't make sense it's the wrong domain and so likewise um what Austrians, certainly in the Rothbardian tradition, have taken to be the calculation problem with socialism. It necessarily requires the institution of private property, various people competing for um, the means of production using a commonly accepted medium of exchange in conjunction with private property rights. And that's what generates you know, market prices to reflect the scarcity of the various inputs. And that's what you need. There needs to be that rivalrous process um, in order to generate, you know, if you want to say the kinds of knowledge or information you can. But the point is that it's not information that can be derived from something else, right? It's it's not like, uh, like, oh, if you just knew where all the atoms were, then you could, you know, figure out where the cells were. And so you could kind of replace biology with physics. It's not like that. Like in, in this tradition, um, like I said, especially in the Rothbardian vein, there's, I, I, I guess one way to put it is, and I, I even wrote an article for Mises.org on this a while ago um, when the Mises Institute was going to have like a, a conference on, it was like some anniversary, I think, of the calculation debate, um, is I said that the, the Misesian calculation problem is not the same thing as the Hayekian knowledge problem. And so let me just real fast just spell that distinction out and then I'll, you know, we can, I'm sure in the, this course, this conversation, Jonathan will kind of circle back. And, and folks, if you're getting lost, don't worry. We will, you know, we will come back and make sure we're not losing anybody in case you're not familiar with some of this inside baseball. But since I just said that distinction, let me at least just spell out what that means. So, you know, Mises originally had laid out what was the, what he thought the fundamental problem was socialism. And, um, under a market economy, there's calculation as possible that entrepreneurs can use market prices to figure out, okay, the inputs going into this enterprise, you know, cost me such and such. And then here's my revenues from the outputs. If I turn a profit, that means I'm getting more from my customers than I am having to spend on the inputs. And so my operation can continue. And if I'm losing money, if I'm, you know, suffering losses, what does that mean? Well, loosely speaking, I'm spending more on the inputs that I'm getting from my customers. And so that's the market's way of saying, fix what you're doing because this isn't working. You need to stop doing this, at least in the current way. And that's the way that the profit and loss test sort of 
husband's society's scarce resources, if that's the way you want to think about it. So it's decentralized. Everyone can go out and do whatever they want, subject to these constraints, and no one mind you know, can be in charge. And that's kind of his, and Mises was saying, in contrast, under socialism, where there's one committee or you know, even one dictator in charge, they have no feedback mechanism. Even ex post, after the fact, they can't look at the plan that you know disposed of society's resources in a certain way and say, was that an efficient use of resources or not? It's not just that, oh, in practice, it'd be hard to know. They were saying, no, just qualitatively, how would they know? And so, so that's the calculation problem. And then Hyatt came along and, you know, and was doing a lot of good stuff in terms of debating the, the socialists who came forward to try to rebut Mises. And Hayek made the point that in practice, there's a lot of dispersed knowledge that there's like, um, and it's often put in the sense of that there's um, tacit knowledge. Like, you know how to ride a bicycle. It would be hard for you to tell someone over email how to ride a bicycle if they didn't already know. So even though you know how to do it, it's hard to turn your knowledge into something that could be transmitted to somebody else. And so Hayek made the point, which is an important point and it's good to say, well, a problem with socialism in practice would be You've got all these experts spread around the economy, people working in the coal mines, people looking at the agricultural sector, blah, blah, blah. It would be hard for them to distill all of their practical knowledge gained from a career of experience and then transmit that to a group of experts. Even, even you know, it just, it's, it's impossible in practice to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but that's different. Mises, for the sake of argument, stipulated that all of that kind of technological knowledge and know-how would be at the disposal of the planner. And he was saying, still, there's this qualitative hurdle. So again, I'm not saying that to denigrate Hayek, but I'm saying sometimes I think other Austrians who come you know, through more of a Hayekian approach and, and they don't think as highly of Rothbard, for example, just in practice, that's kind of how these groups separate themselves. They kind of lump, oh yeah, Mises and Hayek in the socialization calculation debate as if they were saying the same thing. And I think actually what they're saying was different and that difference is very relevant here because Hayek's problem, yes, could be mitigated somewhat with the advance of, you know, smartphones and AI and all this other stuff. Whereas Mises' problem, if he's right, that's there. doesn't matter if you have supercomputers or not. That's, you know, the point is without the institutional structure and money and market prices that you have no way of comparing inputs and outputs. It's important to point out here is that Mises' argument is... Not only, it's not only different than Hayek's argument about knowledge, uh, but it's also very, very different than the typical critiques of socialism that you hear, especially from like from lay people. So the the most common critique of socialism that I hear is that oh, socialists they just don't understand human nature. They don't uh, that we would have this problem of who would take out the trash. So if everybody's going to get paid the same, or if everybody's going to have the same you know uh, ration of of goods that they consume. Then what incentive does somebody have to to invent the next uh, uh, really productive machine or something like that? Or what incentive does somebody have to do the dirty jobs like taking out the trash? What incentive would somebody have to to commit years of their life to studying how to do brain surgery effectively? So that's the most common criticism of socialism uh, that I hear. And what's important to point out is that Mises's criticism that's based on the the lack of of calculation, it assumes what what the socialists say will happen. It, it assumes that, uh, or at least it's uh, above what socialists say will happen, which is that human nature will change. So like once we have socialism, there'll be this, this new socialist man and human nature itself will change where everybody is a saint, everybody cares about their comrades. Uh, 
Um, and what Mises' uh, argument shows is that even in that case, even if you give the socialists that argument and say, okay, sure, yeah, human nature itself will change once we adopt socialism, um, Mises' argument says we still won't be able to economize production. We'll still produce the wrong things. Um, even if the central planning board is made up of a bunch of angels, even if uh, everybody has uh, great intentions and doesn't care about doing the dirty jobs and the hard jobs, they still won't be able to use resources in the best way possible simply because they're, they're lacking that ability to calculate, to anticipate profit and loss. Yeah, great point, Jonathan. So I, again, let me just say it in different words because I, I know some some people, they may not have heard this stuff. So historically, um, you know, Karl Marx wasn't even the first person to suggest a socialist system. Like that that idea had been around for a long time. And yes, in the 1800s, the, you call them conservatives, they would push back against the notion of socialism. And yeah, one of their big things was to say, you're ignoring human nature, you know, the, the communist formula from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, like Jonathan, you're saying, you know, some, some guy who's three times as productive, he's going to learn pretty quickly. Like, wait a minute. If regardless of my effort in the workplace and how much I personally produce compared to my comrades, if my family just gets paid, you know, in terms of goods at the end of each week, based on like how many kids we have and what our caloric requirements are or whatever, and not based on how much I produce, then yeah, maybe after a while, I'm not going to be so eager to work and produce three times as much stuff as most of my peers do. Right. And so, the, you know, that that was a typical argument that the conservative types would make to say why, no, no, we need to keep a market economy in place, private property to, to li align the incentives. But then, as Jonathan was saying, the socialist counter response was to say, oh, we agree with you that right now, looking around the world as it is today, where everyone grows up in this dog eat dog world of capitalism, where you're sort of forced to be grasping and greedy, otherwise you die that that's what people end up, but that's like looking like at a, you know, a caged animal or something and thinking that's its nature that no, um, if we saw people and if, if you knew from birth that your basic needs would be met because you grew up in the socialist commonwealth, then you would be free to pursue your, your activities. You would flourish. You would, you would, you know, uh, find yourself and, and reach your full potentiality and you would dabble in art in the morning and then maybe you'd do some philosophy in the afternoon and then you'd go clocking some hours in the factory because you would realize it was your duty and we, hey, we can't all just do philosophy all day and it would be fine and that would be great. And yes, some people, you know, there'd have to be janitors, but we'd probably rotate and do shifts and things like, right? So that's what they said. And you can say that's implausible or whatever, but ultimately we, we didn't know in the 1800s because there hadn't been why, you know, there hadn't been the the lessons, some would argue, of the 20th century um, at that point of, of large-scale experiments in this idea to see, well, maybe it would work out. Maybe it's not really human nature. Maybe it's just, yeah, human nature in a capitalist frame. So that's why Mises, not that he thought that there really would be a different human nature under a new socialist man, but he was just saying, okay, I'll stipulate all that for the sake of argument. We're, assume away the incentive problem. That the, And also, another huge problem is the problem of power corrupting. Like, oh, you don't want to give a group of people the power to control agriculture because they might starve their enemies into submission, which happened many times in the 20th century. A lot of those, you know, famines. It's funny, when I was younger, I don't know if this was true for you, Jonathan, I used to just think, oh, yeah, socialism is inefficient. And then the older I got, I realized, no, Mao and Stalin, like, deliberately killed at least hundreds of thousands of people that actually wasn't just because, oh, socialism can't raise crops 
very well. It's because they deliberately starved people and for political objectives, right? So there's that issue too, which is a completely separate problem. Like one reason you don't want to have a socialist system is if the wrong people get in charge who are evil, then they might inflict that you know power on their on their enemies. And so again, Mises assumed that all the way too. And but the issue was that it wasn't enough to assume the socialist planners were angels. They would have to be gods too. And mm -hmm. Mises' framework that he was saying, again, for people not getting it, you can come up with a blueprint. We could say, oh, we have this much rubber, we have this much tin, we have this much glass, labor of this various types of skill levels and, you know, distributed across the, you know, give, give me as much detail as you want where the worker's located right now on Tuesday on this date. So I know if I have to move them around, I got to take into account, you know, the travel time and blah, 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 all that stuff. And, and then you can have a plan and use all the resources and you're not wasting anything. There's not factories sitting idle the way that happens under a, a wasteful capitalism. Workers all have jobs. You tell everyone something to do. No one's sitting around watching TV because they're unemployed the way it happens under a crazy market economy. And still, you've got full employment. Factories are all at maximum capacity, cranking stuff out. And then when everything's said and done and you look at, oh, we made this many cars, this many newborn diapers, this much baby formula, this many telescopes. We built new factories in these locations, da, 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 this many new houses. And then you say, was that a good use of our resources or not? And the point is, how would you even begin to answer that question? Like, sure, you could say, don't make a bunch of food that's poisonous. Like, that's a no-brainer. Like, don't make a bunch of hamburgers that are rotten. Okay, but should you make more hamburgers that are, are good and nutritious and taste good or make more cars that also don't blow up when you turn the key, right? So even if you stipulate that you make things that people want, there's trade-offs involved, and the point is when you start to comprehend the problem involved, that's what Mises called the calculation problem. That, And again, to say, oh, well, gee, that just sounds impossible, he said, well, no, the way in practice market economies tackle that problem is because they use money and private property and the means of production. So each, you know, no one's in charge of the whole plan, each little firm or, you know, sole proprietor, if you want to call it that, buys a subset of the means of production and then tries to turn them into goods and services that his or her customers want. And if that thing is profitable, that's a sense in which that's a decent use of resources, right? Because if it weren't profitable, that means other entrepreneurs are bidding more for those resources to do what they want to do with it. And so that competitive process is the way that all the resources in a market economy get allocated to where the consumers want them to go most, to speak a little bit loosely. Yeah, and a really good example of the, the differences in uh, socialism and what can happen in a market economy is, uh, is when you look at what Mao did with steel production. So in, in Maoist China, uh, one thing that he was looking at uh, for to, to compare his own country to other industrial countries of the time was to is to compare China's steel production with every other country's. And he noticed that the number the numbers in China were lower than elsewhere. And so in order to prove that communism works, that socialism works, he he directed the basically the entire country to produce more steel, to to to, to do whatever it took to produce more steel so that he could show, yeah, look, uh, in China, we can produce just as much steel as the United States. And what that involved was uh, was getting, like, all of these, like, farmers in rural parts of China to construct blast furnaces in their backyards 
And they were actually directed to melt down stuff that they already had, metal objects that they already had, like doorknobs and cookware and their bicycles and stuff like that. They were instructed to, to melt that down so that they could make more raw steel. Uh, I put, I do the air quotes because it actually, it, it turned out that the quality of the output wasn't high enough for it to be considered steel. It was actually just uh, what's called pig iron. Uh, but, but the idea is that they, it's funny because they were, they were taking stuff that uh, is a, is like the end product, the finished product of steel production and melting it down to make more steel so that the central planning board, so that Mao could, could say, look how much steel we're producing. So that was their basis of comparison. And, and this, this sort of thing would be impossible in a market economy. And the reason why is because it's just too costly. It's, it would be way too costly. So, so just imagine taking highly valued consumer goods like bicycles and doorknobs and cookware and destroying it just so that you could make a, an intermediate product that produce, that that's on the way to making those very things. And, and so the opportunity cost is extremely high. No, no one firm, no, nor would the entire country, the entire economy, uh, decide to do that sort of thing just just because it's too costly. So. So Mao decided that steel production was going to be his basis of comparison to say that socialism is great. But it, the, the way that he went about it was so costly, uh, it, it ended up just destroying tons and tons of, of valuable consumer goods. What, what, was that part of the Great Leap Forward? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so I, I actually, I mean, I, that sounds certainly plausible. I've never heard those particular anecdotes, so that's interesting. Um, the point I would make on the, the so-called Great Leap Forward, so again, folks, the idea is Mao, looking at the relative backwardness of the Chinese, you know, economy compared to the Western counterparts, thought, well, this is, you know, we're just going to take the bull by the horns and, you know, the, the virtue of a communist society is once we know what the right thing to do is we just order everyone to do it and we just go ahead and do it. I don't care if it takes sacrifice because, you know, the comrades are with us. And so they engage effectively in extreme um, industrialization, you know, much more rapidly than would have happened in a voluntary framework. And so as Jonathan's saying, because it was coming top down, you know, in a system like that with no quality control, it didn't even make sense on its own terms. But my point is, even if it were efficient, like even if they did really make good high quality steel and whatever, even ex, you know, after the fact, again, you run into Mises calculation problem, if everybody has to cut way back on, you know, consuming food and they have to live in, in worse houses for a generation in order so that they can, you know, their, their kids can now have better cars. Like maybe that was the intertemporal trade-off that was being made there that left to their own devices effectively, like their savings rate would have been 20% and Mao at gunpoint is saying, no, we're going to save 80%, right? Again, even if everything were efficient from that point forward, that still could be a colossal failure. That there's a reason in voluntary societies, people tend not to save 80% of their income. That's too much. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, the same thing I mean by saying if people like chocolate ice cream and at gunpoint you force them to eat vanilla, you say that's, you're not helping the consumers. Again, so the economy doesn't exist for its own sake. You don't want to have rising GDP figures just because that ultimately goods and services are there to promote human welfare. And that's, you know, if, if you're hijacking the institutions that exist under a market economy, 
there's no reason to suppose those numbers mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. So to, to get back to the uh, this guy named Rocco and his, uh, he was talking about how uh, modern day computing and artificial intelligence can help us out with this problem. I just wanted to, uh, if somebody's interested in this topic, my friends, uh, Karis Lambert and Tate Fegley, who are uh, Mises Institute Associated Scholars, they have uh, this paper, let me uh, make sure that I get the, the title right. It's uh, Economic Calculation in Light of Advances in Big Data and Artificial Intelligence. And it was published in the Journal of Economic economic behavior and organization last year. And basically they're, they're just addressing this very topic and, and they go point by point in a very systematic way of just showing how it's still impossible. Like no matter what level of computing we reach technologically, uh, we still won't be able to solve this fundamental problem of, of being able to plan an economy. And one of the points that they make in that paper that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Bob, is, uh, is they, they talk about how um, the, this, one way to misconstrue this argument is that it would be a terrible misconstruction uh, is to say that technological advancements don't help economies at all, or or to say that the people who are making this sort of criticism are saying that uh, like AI and computing is worthless just in in general. Um, but they point out in the paper that of course that that entrepreneurs can can use AI, they could use Chat GPT, they could use um, all sorts of, of new technologies to help to help them organize production and find efficiencies in their own factory, for example, and maybe even uh, like do some quantitative work to try to predict what consumers might like in the future. Um, and so I, I wonder what how how would you respond to to maybe a socialist who would say, aha, so so we can use computers to to help us uh, predict what consumers might want in the future. Okay, well, okay, so one thing is to just sort of go meta on it, and that's what I did on Twitter, was to say, right, under a market economy, all these advances in AI can be deployed, like you say, to enhance you know the productivity of people and other equipment in various fields. If instead you had to use valuable computing power in order to do what the market price system and private property rights and whatever already does for us, then at best you're simulating a market that doesn't have as much computing power as its disposal as the actual market does, right? And so the, the, you know, the very best you could do is say, yeah, with the rise in computing power, you, the socialist calculation problem can be better solved for a previous more primitive economy than without that computing power, okay? Again, I, I still think that's not, it's, it's missing the fundamental problem, but even if you conceded that, okay, you could mitigate some of the worst, you know, miscalculations or whatever, and, and, and it wouldn't be so, such a huge blunder, okay, fine. But, but still, it, it's, all you're doing is looking backwards. You're not looking at, you're not doing the counterfactual of saying, the economy with everything at its current disposal, including all the AI advances, what could it do if it's organized in a voluntary private property setting versus a you know, centralized socialist system? It's still, the, the socialism always makes it poorer and less coordinated than it otherwise would have been. So the, the analogy I use, maybe it's a goofy one, as I said, it would be like if this Roco guy said, oh, because now everybody's got smartphones in their pockets, basically, when they're out and about, when you walk up to somebody, instead of speaking to them, why don't you just type on your phone what you want to say and hold it up and let them read it off your phone? Or if they can't read, people. yeah, if they can't read, then you just hit, 
you know, dictate or, you know what I mean? You just hit voice generation and have your phone speak. And so therefore, and you realize, well, that would be goofy that no, I mean, even with the phones, we still benefit from talking and that would just, instead of you being able to use your phone right then to do something else, like look at, you know, where are we going to go for lunch and you're using your GPS or something. If instead you're using your phone to show people what you could just say, that would be a waste of the phone's powers, right? right. So that's, I guess that's what I would say. Is there, is there a, a other thing too that you would say to that, that I'm missing? Oh, no, I, I think that's, I'm, it's exactly what you said. You would still only be able to make use of past information. So you're, on, you're only uh, using data from the past to, and, and, and optimizing that in hindsight. Uh, but the, the issue with the market is that it's, it's in the present and it's forward-looking. Um, another thing that you would miss out on if, uh, if we're just using, um, if, if we're using ChatGPT to try to predict consumer preferences and consumer demands in the future, is that we would miss out on the feedback loop. So this is something that you mentioned earlier, uh, is, is you said that there's no way for us to be able to evaluate and say, oh, that was that was a correct use of resources or that was an incorrect use of resources. So, so we might be able to say, yeah, of course, we're efficiently using re resources because look, we used all of this, uh, this new technology, these supercomputers and all this technology to help us uh, find all these efficiencies. But the, the point is that without the, the market test, without profit and loss results, we still, we still can't in hindsight say that was, a, that was a, an economizing use of resources or that was a, a wasteful use of resources. Yeah, I think part of the issue, and again, we're just kind of circling back and making the same point in different ways, right. is that and, and so I think I have it. So again, folks, if you go to the show notes page for this episode, I'll, I'll link to that Mises.org article. I think in that article, I, Joe Salerno had a good, um, I, I loved his phrasing. I don't know if you've seen it, John. In one of his papers that was on the calculation issue, he said something like, you know, this wasn't a knowledge problem. So he's saying the calculation is, is something new under the sun. So it was that it's something new under the sun. He was trying to say it's not merely a transformation of other types of knowledge into a more accessible format that market prices as generated in a genuine economy, you know, where there's buyers and sellers and, you know, they each have their property titles and their money. And, you know, there's a genuine going enterprise here where you can buy factors of production, produce what you want. And if you make a profit, you keep it. And if you suffer losses, it's your losses. Like you need those institutional settings to be like that for this to work. But in that setting, then there's market prices that are generated that accountants can use to determine profit and loss. And, and Joe's point was, that's a new type of, call it knowledge, call it whatever you want, but that's something new. It's again, not just a transformation. So I guess what I'm saying is like economic value, you cannot deduce from physical facts or chemistry and even raw facts about human desires like, for example, just this guy's Rocco, his thing when he said, um, it's impossible to solve resource allocation problems computationally. He says, no, it isn't. The current economy is an algorithm. It's just a really suboptimal one. I'm going to go out on a limb and say part of how he knows it's suboptimal is he knows, that, oh, we spend way too much, like people in the financial sector earn way too much money and there shouldn't be all these homeless people. Like he just knows that's not the right outcome. And so I would just say, okay, I bet you if you just lit, you know, said, how should we use this farmland over here? What crops should be grown? Rocco and 10 other people would not be able to come up with an agreement on that. 
that because there's different ways you could use it and you could say, well, certainly they'd probably say we shouldn't grow more tobacco for smokers. That's out, I'm pretty sure. And so if you like cigarettes, tough, unless Rocco happens to smoke, in which case they wouldn't. Um, but then, you know, should, should you grow more? Well, geez, you know, shouldn't, what if people, we don't want to cater to people who like to eat uh, food that's not healthy for them, right? Da, 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 right. So I'm just like, should we raise things that cattle should graze on? Well, I don't know what Roka's views are, but it wouldn't shock me. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's unsustainable. We can't have, you know, meat, meat uh, eating by humans. I don't know. But clearly my point is, you see just with something simple, like here's some agricultural land, how should we use that? People aren't going to be able to agree on it, even though they, they could narrow down the range of acceptable answers. They're not going to say, oh, we, we should take a bunch of infants and line them up and then trample them with, with cattle. We can all pretty much agree on that, um, unless maybe they're neo-Nazis. The, but other than that, people are not going to, and by that I meant the leftists, of course, would, would agree, right? So that's it's not clear how to use that. And so then you start writing it and then say of all the millions of different types of resources we have at our disposal, including the fact that we're talking about a timetable over the next 50 years at least of, well, we could do set in motion something now that will pay, reap the benefits from 20 years from now, or should we set something in motion that will reap the benefits 40 years from now? Mm -hmm. There's choices like that too that need to be made. It's not just this year, how many diapers versus how many TVs should be made. Right? So when you start understanding how complex this is, this idea that, oh, it's all reasonable people, if they just got together in a room and just, you know, we had some procedure to determine the right things to make, no, it's, you can't do it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, uh, one thing that I bring up along these lines when I'm uh, uh, talking about socialism with my students is, is I, I talk about how oftentimes we'll make a, a shopping list before we go into a grocery store and we'll say, I'm going to get this, this, and this. I'm going to get uh, eggs. I'm going to get uh, milk and I'll, I'll get some, some ground beef. And then you get into the store and you make a, you make a totally different decision than you were planning on doing. Like you decide to get the steak instead of the ground beef because maybe the price was slightly different than you were expecting. Uh, or, or something catches your eye, your eye on the end of an aisle. And, uh, and so like they, they sucked you in, they got you to buy the thing by putting it on the, on the, on the end cap of the aisle. But, but my point is that even, even we, as we, even we don't know our own preferences going forward perfectly. Like we don't know exactly what we're going to, what we're going to do when we're in the position to make the choice. So, so the idea that, uh, like the surveys or e even um, a computer in, or excuse me, a software on our phone that somehow knows our preferences. It, it's uh, silly to think that these sorts of things would be able to convey accurate information when we can't even convey accurate information about our own decisions going forward. So like we might, we might say, oh, I prefer X to Y, but then when we actually are faced with the decision five minutes from then, we, we prefer Y to X. So it, it seems impossible for, it seems, yeah, it's impossible for a supercomputer to be able to handle that sort of problem. The fact that our, our preferences are not, are not even known to us. Right. And I, I don't know if Steve Jobs said this, but there's some thing about like, you know, some innovator that like he, he was saying how his job or what he does is to provide things, new products for people that they didn't even know they wanted. Yeah. Until they get it and then they realize, oh, yeah, where, you know, where have I, this has been all my life kind of thing. Uh, somewhat related to that is I remember when I was a little kid, um, it, we had a television and we didn't have a remote control. Like you just had to get up and change the channel. 
and we didn't think anything of it because, oh, you, you put what show on and you just sit there and you watch the show. And, you know, if halfway through for some reason you got bored, you'd get up and change the channel. No big deal. And then the guy came to fix it or something. And then he, he had a remote, remote control. He said, here, I'll leave this too. And my mom said, oh, we're not going to need that. We just, and he went, oh, okay, well, I'll just leave it and see if you want it. You know what I mean? And again, I feel funny, but that literally happened yeah. before we had a remote control in the house. We did not realize how you would be, uh, you'd be helpless without a remote control. And yeah, now I don't even yeah. watch TV. I just I use my computer. But, you know, this is back when I actually watched TV. So um, you're right. And, and again, let me make, make the point this way. So you can imagine, folks, like what Jonathan was saying there. So the socialists could come back and they could say, you're right, you're right. And, and really, and also there's a difference too, that, you know, what if you really want some things, you know, in other words, like you're, you, you want some things more than others, but like you really want to ensure that this, and so you could imagine them coming with a system that the AI keeps it like, oh, every month you'll get a certain number of points that you can allocate toward, you know, so it's not just ranking things, but like you can take of your hundred points that you're assigned, you can take 35 for the thing you really want to make sure you get and 40, da, da, and you can do that and you can refine it and da, 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 and then maybe I want to bank points in case there's something six months and you end up recreating the market economy, you know, and you say, oh, why don't we call those points dollars, right? And then, or better yet, Satoshis and, you know, going through or ounces of gold. And you, and so, and, and Mises made this point, um, you know, he's certainly did it in human action and some of his earlier work when he's responding to socialist critics, because a different example, right? So you're a central planning board and you need to know, you know, you're trying to decide, you realize, oh, we can't just keep doing the same static processes year in and year out. We have to have innovation, but it's not obvious, you know, new ways to do things. And so you, you have two different promoters that come in and they each have different ideas for this is a new way to make cars. And one guy's, you know, proposal is bolder. And like, if he's right, it'll really be efficient and that all oh, that will, we'll make so many more cars with the same amount of steel and, and rubber and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's riskier. Like what he's saying, it's not clear that that's going to work. Like he's requiring, we're going to, you know, hire a bunch of scientists and we're going to find this new technique. And this other guys, it's more like, Oh, we're just taking what we already know and kind of just adding to it and building upon it. And it's safer. And the allocation board has to know who do we give the, re we only have enough resources to give to one. How do we do that? And so you could come up with a thing and say, oh, well, you could have risk sharing to try to, you know, make sure that the people coming forward with the ideas, they have some skin in the game and maybe they lose some of their consumption if they're wrong. And, and next thing you know, you've just recreated the capital markets and having people with their own, you know, putting 20 percent down for a loan or what. So, right. So it's the, the point is the, the way that the socialists in theory, like try to correct all these problems that Mises and Hayek were raising in these debates they ended up step-by-step step reinventing the market economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one uh, similar feedback mechanism that I've seen proposed by socialists is uh, to look at the uh, how long the lines are for different goods. So like, if there's a line for a particular good, then that means we need to reshuffle resources over there and produce more of that thing because there's a line. So, so, <clears throat> so they're just sort of like, sort of vaguely measuring what would, what be a, what would be a market shortage um, if there's a, like a price control in a, in a in a typical market, but just by looking at the number of people who are who are in the line, but of course all all of these sorts of um, all of these sorts of mechanisms, whether you're looking at um, like the point system or the the length of the lines, or if you're just trying to do the replicating economy over and over again, they're they're all just they're all vague and not quite 
as precise ways of, of trying to get back to the market economy, of, of just approximating the market economy, to which like all of the economists are saying, well, why not just have a market economy in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And another point that Mises made in the, during these debates was to say that the typical socialist, you know, they're thinking of just like a factory manager, right? So they're just, they're, they're viewing like the economic problem as you've got a factory there and it has to, you know, it, it's just a given that it's going to be making whatever cars and you have workers that come in and then in the, in the socialist vision, you've got the workers who come in, they actually make the stuff, right? So they ought to be getting the full value of their product. And instead you've got this parasitic managerial class. They don't do anything. They just come in and sit in the office they, they're not out making cars. They're just moving papers around and, you know, maybe they're watching the, the bank balance or something, but, you know, that's all unnecessary details that wouldn't be needed in a socialist system where, you know, if you didn't have money. And and Mises, you know, was saying, among other problems, that's just taking it as a given that there should be a factory there making cars. How do we know that, right? That, that that's something too that gets decided in the broad sweep of the market economy solving the so-called economic problem is, you know, should, what should be on this land right here? Should there be residential housing? Should there be factories? Should there be a school? Should it just be agriculture? Should you just leave it idle because it's actually not worth enough to, to do anything with that plot of land? You know, so all of these things, they just take it for granted. And um, do, you, do you want to take a, a moment? I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Jonathan, but something with Rocco's statement there at the end about how the market economy right now is just an algorithm and it's, it's a suboptimal one. And so this is kind of like the, the Langa learner, you know, their proposed solution to the so-called calculation problem, you know, and they were saying, you know, this professor Mises has done a, a service to the economics profession by raising this problem. But what he doesn't realize is the market economy solves that. And, and they took like the differential equations and they basically did, you know, like sort of, um, the the Walrasian approach to modeling an economy, and then they seem to think that in real life, the what happened in the economy was that there was a system of equations that was being solved through a process of trial and error, and that's really what was going on in the market. And well, gee, if the market can solve the system of equations, so can the central planning board, except we can pick you know an efficient outcome that dovetails more with our sense of justice rather than the market having to, you know, go with the initial allocation of resources where there's a bunch of real rich people and a bunch of poor people. What if we have a better distribution of wealth and pick, you know, a Pareto optimal outcome in that setting? And it was just, among other things, it was just shocking to me how they actually thought right now the market economy is solving equations. Yeah. So really the only thing that I have to say about that is it's unfortunate that, uh, we're, we're so visual. And what I mean by that is when we look at the economy, we see prices and we see quantities of certain goods being produced. We see a certain number of people going to a concert. We see uh, stock market uh, indices going up and going down. And so our, the temptation is for us to, to take all of those numbers all, all of that quantitative information and, and start to think that the economy is like an algorithm. It is, it's just a big uh, a set of equations, a, a big set of simultaneous equations that we need to solve. Um, and the market economy kind of does that on its own, but there's these little inefficiencies, there are these problems that we want to address. Uh, but 
but in, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of equations that that needs to be solved. Um, it, so it's unfortunate that that's that there's that temptation, there's that connection that we that often happens where people see, oh, it's just a bunch of numbers. Why don't we just turn it into a big math problem? But but that's why I think the especially the Austrian school of thought is is great is because it looks beneath the numbers and it sees that the, the numbers uh, do not exist on their own. The, the numbers are the result of people making qualitative choices. It's the result of, of people who have very different values, very different expectations, uh, all, all these sorts of uh, differences between people, and then they make their choices and the numbers are a result. So it's you can't you can't take all of the result of the results of these choices that are made by everybody and turn it into a big math problem because you're ignoring the problem that's being solved by all the individuals within the economy already to to produce the numbers in the first place. So you can't you can't assume that the the numbers will be there and are usable for any sort of central planning that you're going to do because the numbers have to be generated in the first place by a qualitative distributed process of people making choices and exchanging. Yeah, well said. I I think this is a, a related issue. Like I know in other fields, people say something like, you know, oh, that person's mistaking, mistaking the map for the, you know, the landscape or something mm -hmm. where yeah. we're taking a human model of the thing under question or being studied. And then we're starting to like think in terms of that model. I, this reminds me whenever I read like Scott Sumner talking about stuff and he's like, oh, the reason, you know, the economy slowed in 2009 was uh, all the, you know, firm owners thought that NGDP growth was going to be higher than it was. And it was, no, they don't even know what NGDP is, Scott. That's not what happened, <laughs> you know? So you can, maybe that's shorthand for something, but no, that's not what happened literally. So uh, I find the same thing here that, yeah, there's the economy is not literally solving equations. We all know that. And so at best, and then again, by Rocco or the, you know, the, the socialist economist who debated with Mises and Hayek, by them trying to say, oh, what's really happening in a market is there's a system of equations. And yeah, if you do that, then a computer can solve the equations and it's no big deal. But the point is that's actually not fully capturing what's going on in a market economy. And once you bring in that richer uh, structure, you realize that, oh, actually socialism wouldn't be able to mimic the results of a market because the, you know, the market is what it is. And without that institutional structure, it, it wouldn't work. Well, I think we have uh, beaten that issue to death. So thank you, <laughs> Jonathan, for your insights, uh, folks. Uh, again, if you want to read more on this, I'll include links, including to the paper that Jonathan mentioned where they specifically talk about AI in relation to calculation debate. So check the show notes page for that. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.